Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay. And if you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. And you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about raising all voices around the world. So maybe, just maybe, you can be one of our next guests. We would love to hear from you. Our show today is about having a really important conversation, and that is about planning for difficult times. What do you want in terms of quality of life? How do you define that? What paperwork do you need in order uh, to ensure that your wishes are held to? So before we get to that conversation, I'm just going to do my quick shout outs here. I will be doing an event on June 23rd from eight to nine o'clock central time sponsored by maple hill senior living and also moments hospice you can find more information out by reaching out to me at laurie at alzheimerspeaks.com and that is going to be all about uh, dementia map we're going to give you a tour on how to use that and what what that is about and then uh, I, I think this is a real important thing for people to understand that it's available to them mods venture is targeting three different challenges uh, to give 50 to 100 thousand dollars seed money to one is for adaptive clothing one is for aphasia and the other is for respite care so go to modsventure.org for more information on that let's see uh, check out the memory cafe directory because more things are opening up there and coral health is still allowing people to download two of their music app for free during COVID, but we know that's going to be changing as uh, things open up here. So go to corohealth.com, that's C-O-R-O health.com, and we are going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? 
struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. We are back, and I finally get to introduce you to our guest today, who I'm really excited about. See, this show, we've actually partnered with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team to provide resources and information to caregivers and care partners and people who are living with dementia during the pandemic. Today, our topic is going to be medical care decisions, preparing your family for what lies ahead. And Lord knows you can never be too prepared when it comes to that. Our guest is Deborah Day Luxon, and she is an award-winning author and founder of the Healthcare Agent Literacy Project. Conversations about medical decisions are hard and and really difficult to do, and they're frequently avoided. We all know that until it's too late, until you're in crisis, and that's the worst time to try to plunge into that and make good decisions. So Deborah's work focuses on creating a solid foundation for meaningful conversations between patients, loved ones, and the medical team. Well, Deborah, I'm so excited to have you with us today on the show. This is such a valuable, valuable conversation that we're going to have, and I know you've got great insights. But before we get into your presentation, I always like to ask every guest if they've been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yes, Lori, thank you for this. My mother died with Alzheimer's in 2016, and she kind of slid into old age and dementia without even the family recognizing her decline. And we didn't have the conversations we needed to have. So I am an advocate for early conversations because we failed to have them with our mother. I totally, totally understand that. In my own situation, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and it is just so critical to have these conversations. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to have you switch over to PowerPoint, and we will um, listen to your presentation, and then we'll get back together again with a few questions, okay? Perfect. Focus is dementia and medical care decisions, preparing your family for what's ahead. And ultimately, it's about building resolute patients and resilient families. And just a side note, I have to put a disclaimer in here that this presentation does not provide any legal, medical, or financial advice. I am just a person, and I'm sharing stories with you that are used for illustration only and not intended to suggest what your decisions should or shouldn't be during your medical event or events. It's startling to realize that one out of every six women, that's about 17%, and one out of every 10 men or 10% living past the age of 55 will develop dementia. So it's incredibly important to let your family know your wishes about future medical treatment options in advance of a medical event, because that is the easiest way to prepare your family for what's ahead and avoid conflict and harm within your family unit. And we'll come back to that concept of conflict and harm in just a moment. We know that words matter, and we know that the intentions behind the words matter. 
And we know the choices that are reflected in those words matter so, so much. So when we take a look at the word harm, typically the dictionaries define that as a physical injury, especially that which is deliberately inflicted. And yet I will suggest that there is also an emotional, mental, or spiritual injury that is sometimes also inflicted, especially when the family is in conflict about choices uh, regarding medical care. That results in what I call loving harm. It's when your family thinks they know the best way or the right way forward for your medical care, and they may not be listening to you or may not understand because your choices would be different than theirs, which is why we need to learn to become resolute patients, um, purposeful, determined, and unwavering in what we choose for our care. And building a resilient family along the way, able to withstand or recover quickly from a difficult situation. And certainly when we're in a medical event, that is a difficult time for our families. Let's listen to four stories. And again, using the concept of harm and conflict, take a look at where the conflict is in each of the stories. You'll meet Tom, who's an 85-year-old terminal cancer patient, You'll meet Rachel, who's a 50-year-old healthcare agent, and you'll meet Bill, who's a 67-year-old terminal cancer patient who has regret about some of his choices. And you'll meet Doug, a 66-year-old man who didn't know until too late he was his mom's agent. And the bottom two stories are personal to me. Bill is my late husband and Doug is my brother. And even though the top two are about cancer, they're still about conflict that can exist within the family, regardless of what the diagnosis is and the prognosis. So Tom's story is pretty clear. It sounds like this. He's 85 years old with terminal cancer, and he tells his kids, I don't want to do any treatments. I just want to sit on my porch and enjoy my remaining time. They insisted I fight, and I gave in to their wishes. The treatment didn't work. I'm exhausted and sad that I lost precious time with them. I told them so. So he knew what he wanted, and his family wanted something differently, and he gave in. Rachel's story is a little bit different. She's a healthcare agent, and her dad was in the intensive care unit in a coma. And she says, I did everything my dad asked me to do as his healthcare agent. I followed his wishes, his choices, and his directive. And per his directive, I authorized removing life support when it was clear he wouldn't return to a quality of life he could accept. My sisters were really mad at me that I gave up on dad, and they haven't spoken to me since dad's funeral. And certainly there's a lifelong harm to Rachel and the family unit in the coming years. Bill's story uh, as a terminal cancer patient who went through a stem cell transplant and a lot of chemo. If I had understood at the beginning what I know now, I would have said no to all the treatments except pain management and focused on living rather than not dying. So again, he made choices early on about care that in hindsight, the medical treatments he chose, he would rather have not done. And Doug's story, again, this is my brother and my mother. Mom was in her late 80s, and we didn't realize she was fading into dementia right before our eyes. Doug had been helping mom and dad keep track of their finances for several years without ever realizing he was their named healthcare agent. Mom didn't like to talk about the medical stuff, so we didn't. We'd hear, you know what I'd want. So 
he waited too long. We waited too long. And then we couldn't have those discussions about what she wanted for medical care in her final years. And toward the end, Doug struggled with the cumulative weight of the decisions, not knowing if he was inflicting his decisions on her life or doing for her what she would have wanted. So in summary, harm is something that someone does to someone else, resulting in pain and suffering to either one or both persons. And sometimes, in the case of Bill's story, harm can also be self-inflicted and internalized harm caused by a sense of failure. So, you know, part of the, the issue is having conversations earlier. How do we have the conversations earlier? So let's take a moment and look at the serious or terminal illness continuum. And we want to start as adults. And an adult is defined as anyone who is over the age of 18. And we know that in our lifetime, all of us will decline. And eventually, we will all turn the corner and head toward death. Our decline could be temporary. We may have appendicitis and have a surgery to take care of the appendicitis. We may have a cut and cure cancer and we have the surgery, we have a recovery period and we return to normal or close to normal. We may have a slow decline and certainly I put dementia into that slow decline. It can be over a period of years. It's easy to lose track of dementia, especially if you're not living near or close to the aging parent or loved one. A rapid decline may be ALS or it could be an aggressive cancer, but at some point all of us will have a permanent decline. We could be in our 80s and 90s And that is going to be considered extreme aging. And so that is part of that permanent decline. No matter how healthy we are, we are going to turn that corner. So when we look at this from what's a serious illness, what's a terminal illness, serious illness is anything that is in that gray column, temporary, rapid, or permanent decline. Terminal is when your decline is permanent and there is a prognosis of a death at some point. This is where we typically start talking about end-of-life discussions. We know that we, we, are, we have that terminal diagnosis, and we can't avoid the conversations that we've been avoiding for a long time. This is typically when we are forced into talking about our advanced care planning and our health care directive. And In the case of uh, my late husband, we didn't bring the kids along on the journey. So they knew he was sick. They knew he was terminal, but they lived out of state. So they didn't experience the decline. They weren't able to observe the decline. And so toward the end, they were processing and trying to catch up with where Bill was on his journey. So when we think about this, not only from the cancer diagnosis, but from the dementia diagnosis, What if we started having the conversations earlier? Certainly on one of the earlier slides, we talked about if you are living past 55, there is a likelihood that 10% of the men and 17% of the women will be diagnosed with dementia. So what if instead of delaying the conversations, we started talking about them earlier and started to call them patient decision guidelines? And we started talking about who's on our team. As we continue to decline, all of us will need help at some point. It makes conversations easier. If we can talk about time, cost, and quality, 
and put them in priority order for us. And if we can define quality of life that is actionable or understandable, not only to our loved ones, but also our medical teams. And if we can do that early, we can align the treatment with what our choices are and what our wishes are. So as we talked about that, we talked about your team. And when I say you or your, I'm referring to you as a patient. So you're going to have a team around you and you have one around you on a daily basis. Decision elements of time, cost and quality and definition of quality of life. So we'll start with the team. And as I mentioned, you are the patient and it doesn't matter if you're getting a shot or you have a broken arm or you have a serious or terminal illness diagnosis. You have loved ones around you and their job in red is to companion you and they lead with their heart. They could be your mother, your father, your partner, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your close friends. In addition to loved ones, at some point you may need a caregiver, that person who leads not only with their heart, but their hand. So they do something for you that you are not able to do in that moment. It may be temporary or it may be permanent as you continue to decline. There is also what we call an attorney in fact, and that is the person who helps pay bills from your checking account. Now, this requires a legal document with your bank or from your attorney because a caregiver can step in and mow your yard or provide transportation to and from a a medical uh, appointment. They cannot pay bills from your checking account without that legal document. So that's an attorney in fact. And you are strongly encouraged to have a healthcare agent, that person who will make your medical decisions when you are not able to. You may have a car crash. You may be in a coma. You may have terminal cancer. You may have dementia. Again, when you are not able, that person will step in and help. Now, keep in mind that the healthcare agent doesn't necessarily have access to your financials, so it's important that the two people work together, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. You will also have medical professionals who will treat whatever condition that you are presenting when you go to the doctor, uh, you know, like a shot or that broken arm, or it may be a long series of treatments, keeping an eye on, again, dementia or cancer. And then finally, another document and a legal person that you have on your team is a personal representative. And that's the person who will help liquidate your assets upon your death. So that's a great intellectual exercise. And it gets a little bit more complex, though, when we start applying names. So in this case, it's name the team. And this is Miriam's team. This is my mom. My brother and my three sisters were over on the left as part of the loved ones. Um, We had spouses, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and my mom had some living siblings. Doug, of course, was her son, so he's in the loved ones category. But then he also was a caregiver. He made sure that her yard got mowed. He made sure that she had transportation to and from the appointments. He watched over and made sure that things were working around the house, or if he wasn't there to do them, he made sure that somebody came in and fixed them. He also was the attorney. In fact, again, in his story, he had been working with the finances for several years, but it was a surprise to him after my dad died to see that he was also the healthcare agent. 
And he was also the personal representative. And he knew that because he had been taking care of things from my dad's death. The sisters, my two sisters and I, didn't really understand that Doug was wearing many hats for mom. And so it was easy to see, well, how come you have all the information? Well, looking at all the roles he was filling, it's no wonder that he didn't have more information than we did. He was legally obligated to have that information. So now let's shift and talk about decision elements of time, cost, and quality. We know that in every decision, there, there is an element of quality, time, and cost. It's interesting because it doesn't matter if you're buying a refrigerator, a couch, a car, those three elements are in there. How much money do you want to spend? When do you want to have it by? And what does quality look like for you? In the medical event, quality becomes quality of life, time becomes time on the calendar, and cost becomes treatment cost a services cost, what are you going to be able to do or not do, and how are you going to pay for both the treatment and any additional care that you may require, both during the actual medical event and in the years to come. So those three elements, everybody says, yes, absolutely, they're all there, they're all equally important. It's when you take a moment and you really stop and say, which is the number one importance to me? Is it time? I want the maximum amount of time on the calendar and I will accept a lower quality of life perhaps. And I am least concerned about cost. So if you change the order, you change the outcome. If I am most concerned about cost, that means I would refuse care that I couldn't pay for or that wasn't covered by my insurance. I would still potentially have a lower quality of life, and I could potentially have much less time on the calendar, but that is the least of my worries. And if I shake it up again and change it, so now I want quality of life, I want to be able to do this and that, and I will accept less time on the calendar if I have a better quality of life. And I am still, at this in this scenario, still least concerned about cost. So if we're going to talk about quality, we have to be able to define it. And if you take a moment, and usually when we go to the doctors, we talk about our physical health. What is it that we can do? And certainly my mother highlighted to me how important it is that we add in the elements of emotional. I could watch her have conversations, but I watched the joy, what she was feeling slip away. And I also watched her mental ability, that ability to think and process slip away. And as those two declined, I also saw her losing that spiritual connection or the social connection. So it's important to think about how would we define quality of life? What's important to us? What's important to you may not be important to me and vice versa. Here's another way to look at this is start to think about and elicit clues, what I like to call it sometimes. Think of a, a verb uh, for the physical part, the doing part. I like to ride. I need a little bit more description. Is it a two-wheel bike? Is it a motorcycle? Or 
isn't a bull. It's a totally different outcome, and it gives a different set of expectations, both to your loved ones and the medical professionals as they try to navigate your care with you. I've already told my kids, I'll give up riding my motorcycle if I can do some of the other things, if I can still ride a two-wheel bike, for example. And then again, when I think of joy and I think of emotions, I think of my mother. And I've told my kids, when I no longer recognize you, the quality of my life is declining. Now, that's my story. Someone else's story may be different. I like to read. Okay, read what? A book, schematics, complex drawings, or trade journals. So again, filling in the descriptors helps your medical team define better care, better choices, better options for you, and also helps your family understand why you're choosing some of the things you're choosing. And then how to connect outside of yourself as a faith-based service, whether it is also a social connection. But again, it is that ability to recognize people, to recognize uh, that faith outside of yourself. Now you can start to see where there is the potential of conflict and harm, especially around medical treatment choices, time versus quality of life. I can almost guarantee you that all of your loved ones will want more time on the calendar with you. And you may want quality of life. And so that sets it up for contention between your loved ones and your caregivers and you as patient, and then your agent who is trying to represent you. So if we go back again and think about the four stories, Tom's story, the 85-year-old cancer patient who wanted to sit on the porch, Tom's family wanted more time. So they badgered him into seeking treatment that would give him more time what it did was reduced his quality of life. So there was contention there. In Rachel's story, Rachel's sisters clearly wanted more time. And Rachel, as the agent, focused on the quality of life that her father wanted. So again, Rachel's sisters were in conflict with Rachel, who was following her father's wishes. And Bill's story. Initially, he focused on treatments that would give him more time not realizing that the treatments also required recovery time. And so he gained 12 months, but he lost 12 months in recovery time. So again, time for him in that case was net zero, and he too experienced a lower quality of life, hence his regret. And then my brother's conflict was he didn't know what mom truly wanted. So he was left doing what a reasonable person might do. But there's another way. There's a fifth story. So here's Julie's story. And this is about becoming that resolute patient and a resilient family. And Julie's mom was 60 years old and had received a terminal diagnosis. And she sat the family down and said the top priority for her was quality of life. She never wavered. She gave them the definition of quality of life to help them understand and we learned to accept her last months were about her, not about us, and not about our fear of losing her too soon in our lives. Still painful and hard, but mom died peacefully with all of us around her. Our family is able to support each other through our loss. 
And clearly here, there was conflict at the beginning, but because mom started the conversations early, she kept them focused on this is important to me and brought the family along and helped the family understand her definition of quality of life and gave them time to process their feelings and to come together so that at the end, everybody was on the same page and they were still able to support themselves. So again, reaching alignment with Julie's family. They started with wanting more time. Julie's mom focused on quality. She was resolute and she got everyone focused on quality of life. And along the way, the family became the resilient family. So again, start the conversations early to define the roles and responsibilities, set the expectations of the patient's team, your team, Give everyone time to align to your decision, your priorities of time, cost, and quality. Having the time, giving the time to allow the discussions, the dialogues, the clarification of the patient's definition of quality of life, your definition of quality of life. Deborah, excellent presentation. And it really hit home with me in terms of personal thoughts. You know, I've been working on my daughter for years just about being cremated. That's something that I want. And she's like, Mom, I don't want you burnt. And so we have this joke going back and forth of let me be small for once in my life, you know, and sprinkle me wherever you want or put me in jar. I don't care. But, you know, I don't need to take up space on the planet. I just I don't feel that need. And so literally, I mean, I've been having this conversation with her for probably 15 years now. And the last couple of years, I have let everybody know, friends and family, you know, if I if I ever get cancer, I don't want treatment. I have seen so many friends go through this process. And I want that to be known loud and clear, even though it's in all my paperwork. I just want to keep reminding them of that and and why that is important to me. Because for me, and again, this might not be anyone else's choice, but for me, quality of life trumps the game for me. Yep. And so um, I really appreciated you pointing out such great, great detail in this process. I personally believe it's important, as you do, to really start having these conversations early How early is early? So in my particular case, I started having conversations in 2011 when my late husband died. And it forced the conversation. And then it reinforced it when my mother died. But it changed the dimension of the conversation because now I had to acknowledge it wasn't just about cancer. There's also other aspects of what happened as my mother declined and how If we think about the end game and then all of the tiny, tiny medical decisions along the way, we need to align all of the decisions with what we want at the end. And so, again, trying to get people to understand all of the decisions early on. Very, very true. In terms of starting this conversation, do you have any tips for people on, this is such a tough tough conversation. I know for so many, death has never been anything that's been difficult for me to talk about, but that's because my mom was really adamant when we were little 
I mean, she brought us to wakes and funerals. And I still, to this day, remember her friends kind of whispering, Dorothy, they shouldn't be here. They're too young. And my mom would just say, hey, they see us when we enter this world. They need to, to see and appreciate when we leave this world. This is a normal cycle. And I want my children comfortable with this. But, I, but not everybody has that belief. So I think for me, it's been easier. My brothers aren't in the place that I'm at. They went, you know, let's, they don't want to talk about any of that stuff. And I totally agree with you. And it's funny you should mention that because I remember being a five-year-old and a six-year-old going with my mother to the funerals and she had the same mindset. So I've always been able to... Um, understand that that is a part of our life cycle. And my family also, when, when you know, I started writing my books, they're, they're leaning back in the conversation. And, and it's like, you start to say, oh, just pass the potatoes, just let's not talk to Deb, because we don't want to, we don't want to talk about this stuff. So what I say is, it's never too early. And clearly, if you're over the age of 18, start thinking about what you want, because a car crash and a terminal diagnosis can come at any moment. And being prepared ahead of time is incredibly helpful for the people around you. The other thing that I suggest is, much like your podcast, starting the conversation with, hey, I heard Lori on the, on the radio the other day, or I listened to her podcast. She brought up some points and start talking about the points, books, stories, medical events that happen in the news. I, I do that with my kids a lot. You know, I'll see something in the news and I'll go, ooh, this was really cool. I like this. Consider this when you're making decisions for me. And then there are others where I'll go, ooh, I mm, mm, uh, don't want that. So think about that. And be careful because there's a series of decisions involved. And sometimes you may make a series of decisions not realizing you went down the left road and not the right road. Yeah, that's that is so, so true. And I I don't know. I I guess I was brought up where you can have a discussion without having an argument or this right or wrong thing. But I have a lot of friends where it it's it's right or it's wrong. Everything in their life is right or wrong. And they have a really difficult time just kind of looking at different opportunities. For me, that's never been an issue. It's, it's just, I look at it as a phase of learning. One thing that I did like, and this is perfect timing because it's kind of graduation season, but I love this idea. I had a, a couple of friends say, I am giving for a graduation gift, powers of attorney and healthcare directives. That's my gift. Yeah. And I would love to see this conversation get into the high schools and get them to understand what's so important. Because I've had, and you probably have too, where friends, kids are, they're sick or they've gotten, like you said, in a car accident, they're paying the medical bills, but they can't, they can't access any of the information. And it's horrible. It's a horrible situation right. for a family. Right. Or even having the 18-year-old define what's important. So when they're in that car crash and they're having difficult conversations, I've, I've had the conversation with my daughter who is very, very active and said, if you had a car crash and you came in in a coma and your leg was damaged and they could repair it and you would have 95% mobility, maybe 90%. Or they could amputate it and you would have 100% with a prosthetic leg. Which would you want? And so shifting the conversation away from end of life to here is a medical example 
where it's it's not end of life, but it is quality of life. Yeah, that's a great example. And and people, like you said, they just don't want to talk about that or, you know, we'll deal with that later. We'll deal with that later. And then it never, it never gets dealt with. Yeah. So in a prior career, I was a project manager and we used to talk about risk management and issue management. A risk is something that might happen. An issue is something that is happening. So every time that you don't talk about the risk of something happening, if it happens, then it's suddenly an issue and nobody's taken the time to figure out what you might want. So you're losing time while you're trying to figure it out. Yeah. Do you have any tips for maybe different approaches for people to, to broach this subject? Because dynamics are different in every relationship. The dynamics are different and then everyone hears differently. And it, it's, it's almost you need to take the time to just put something out there. And try to understand when someone knows that they were hurt. If you're the patient and someone is arguing against or with you, is it their fear talking? Is it, what is it that they're trying to address? And certainly they, they want you to do it. If you do it their way, they know you heard them. Mm-hmm. And so you have that conflict, that contention between who got hurt. Do one-on-one to start with. Or you, again, listen to the news or you start and saying, it's time I did my annual review of the finances. It includes the advanced directive. I'm over 55. Mom had Alzheimer's. There's a higher probability than that I will get dementia. So let's start talking about this. And I think it's truly trying to take the lead in the conversation. Now, on the flip side, If you're an adult child and you're looking at your parent and they don't want to talk about it, again, part of what I did with the quality of life is I used the phrase eliciting clues. You can softly interview your parents and start to elicit what's important to them. And and then you can start having the conversations differently. But you're listening. You're asking a question. And You'll probably get a monosyllable answer to start with, but if you keep going, you'll get a richer dialogue. You know, one thing we did with my parents, it was my dad had brain cancer, my mom had dementia, and it was like, you guys really need to get a will and your healthcare directives. And they were like, no, no, no. And my dad would go, oh, we just, we don't have that much. And I'm like, it's not about how much, it's about your needs and your wants. And in fulfilling those wishes, he did not want to deal with end of life, though, even though the way he was saying it, you wouldn't think that was it. But I just know my dad. And so finally, I said, you know what, Tom and I will do it with you. We need to get our paper. This isn't about dying. This is about smart living. And they got so comfortable knowing that we were doing it at a younger age with them. I mean, I mean, it just changed their whole perspective in yep. terms of the process. So, you know, I encourage families, you know, this isn't about them. This isn't always, you know, we, we focus that a lot and we say, well, you should do this, but have we done it ourselves? Right. And that's a real critical step. And sometimes that's, I think, one of the easiest ways to kind of get over the hump when you do it together. It takes the scary out because you're all going to be thinking about the same things. You're going to have some of the similar questions. You're going to be able to have a, a conversation that's not awkward because now it's important to all of you. Mm-hmm. So that that's just what, what we did. 
what about for a person who's facing a, a diagnosis? Because it seems like a lot of times those crisis situations, you know, that are that could be life changing, trigger all of these things. And you know, what are your thoughts on waiting until that moment? It's least desired on my part. It's it's I prefer to have the conversations while you're not influenced and you're waiting. I think sometimes the minute you are waiting for a diagnosis or you have the diagnosis, now you're waiting for the prognosis, your world shrinks to what that event is and you lose the ability to see beyond this moment. And so I prefer to have the to encourage people to have the conversations outside of a medical event. So there's less urgency, there's less emotion, there's less fear. And certainly if, if you get into a situation and you're waiting and you need help, I'm not sure if people are aware of palliative care. And I call them the translators because the palliative care teams that I've seen in progress, they are the, the translators between the patient and the medical teams, both ways, explaining the medical team to the patient and explaining the patient to the medical team. They're also the person who stands with the patient explaining what's going on to the family. So they're there to support the patient and help the family come to alignment and, and truly understand that. So there is a, a way to get help too, if, if there are conversations and people just are not understanding or not moving. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of times when, when you're waiting on that diagnosis too, I mean, your level of stress is way up. And I find when I'm really stressed, I don't think as clearly my mind spins and sometimes it'll, it'll loop in certain directions and you don't have all the facts at that point. And so, you know, you might be hopping on Google and doing your own little research, or maybe you have a doctor that doesn't have a really great bedside manner and who doesn't really thoroughly communicate the way you need somebody to. That to me makes all the difference in the world too, in terms of understanding. And I, and again, here, I guess I would just step in and encourage people don't go to those appointments alone, bring somebody with you, get a second pair of ears and eyes involved because it is just a lot to take in and no matter how organized you are and and capable when it's personal it all changes right and and i think too asking the right questions and having someone there to ask the questions that you didn't see or didn't think to ask you know again you'll get better treatment going forward if you fully understand it and have asked all the questions that you can think of and then be coached by someone who knows questions that you didn't ask that perhaps you should. Yep, exactly. I want to talk about healthcare directives too, because I think everybody thinks, well, if I have that, I'm good. Everything's, everything's covered. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, both my books were written because I I absolutely believe in healthcare directives. I believe in naming the healthcare agent. I also know that the healthcare directive is not the end all be all, even though we are in, uh, encouraged to write down all the answers to various scenarios. What happens if those scenarios don't happen? We spent a lot of time with Bill focused on making sure that the DNR was in place. And when he was in the intensive care unit, I assumed that it was a done deal and I wouldn't have to make any decisions. His heart never stopped. 
So the DNR was never enacted, but there was all of the blood pressure medicine, the ventilator, and all of the other things that we had to make a decision. I had to make the decision eventually to remove. So it's great to have it. You should have one. But what I'm trying to suggest is there are other things for guidelines that will step in and come into play when you're in a crisis that isn't answered in your healthcare directive. Yeah, well, I, and I'll just mention too, because I just ran into this, I, I went to do my license and it always says, you know, do you want to be a donor? Well, now there's a question on there about, do you want to be resuscitated? Yes or no. And I, I was kind of stumped and it's like, well, I'm on the deadline. I gotta, I have to make a decision here. And I ended up saying no, even though I have a do not resuscitate with very specifics, but they're not gonna have that at the car accident. (laughs) And I thought, well, I don't necessarily want someone else that I don't know making that decision. And I still don't know if I made the right decision. I know I kind of have a backup for that, but it was just, uh, it just took me by surprise. Because I didn't know really what that question meant and how that would be handled as a whole. And then I've heard that even if you have a do not resuscitate, sometimes they don't follow them. Right. If if all the pages aren't there and depending on their own codes and things like that. So this is a really complicated, you know, conversation for people to have. How do you recommend people address these healthcare directives in terms of, I mean, there's, there's so many things that could happen. How do you address them all in terms of what your wants are? So that's where I go into what's your definition of quality of life. And then, you know, all of the various scenarios, it's at that moment in time. And so the question becomes, how can we write a healthcare directive that provides guidance and balance between the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual? Because I could have a great body, but then no longer be able to function mentally with a traumatic brain injury, for example. So it, it's making your wishes known, your choices known in a flexible manner. The definition of quality of life will get you quite a way there. There's no reason why in any standard form, there's always a section about additional comments draw a square and put in some of the things right into your healthcare directive. Add the triangle and add the definition or the priority of time, quality, cost. Just add it into, and it certainly will start a conversation. I think that's really important in in focusing if quality of life is your thing. But it is hard because not everybody always agrees with your decisions. And, you know, how how do you deal with that? How do you get through to family to not override what you want? And I mean, if you're incapacitated or, you know, unable to speak, I mean, you don't really have any control to be able to say, hey, 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 (laughs) no, (laughs) listen to me type thing. How do you, how do people work with that in treatment plans that, that they're just not comfortable with, or they're just not willing to let you go they're not willing to go through that process. And so they think they can stop it by having you hang on, even though it's not what you want. So I think that's where having the conversations early and trying your best to bring your family into alignment. And certainly in the middle of an event, if you were to have an issue and uh, 
part of your family was going down the path that you didn't want and the other part of your family saw it, you can always ask for a medical ethical consult because they're there to sort out and to represent the patient and figure out what the patient wanted and then what is the right way forward for that patient. There may always be some element of conflict, but if you have defined what's important to you, time, quality, cost, and then took the effort to define quality, that also will give the ethics team something to look at and to say the treatment doesn't do what you want it to do. And the patient was clear, time on the calendar is important, time in the calendar is not important Mm -hmm. to the patient. Yeah. One of the goofy things I did in mine, and I don't think it's goofy, but I know a lot of people do, and and I I really don't care what they think because it's my life. But I have actually written a letter I want read at my celebration of life, and I want to confirm to people that these were my choices. So my daughter doesn't get harassed for why did she do that? That's a great idea. Great idea. I take the step. I have six kids and I've taken the step to say, this one is my healthcare agent. This one is my executor. And then I have the same conversation with each of the six kids to make sure that my expectation of you is to support those who are doing the role of healthcare agent. I have told them to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's great. I Like I said, I took it to another level to be able to, and I kind of joke in the letter that, hey, I always get the last word in, you know, and so I use a little sense of humor, but I want to thank them for being in my life. And yeah. you don't always get that opportunity. You're right. You're right. That's a great idea. And there are people sometimes in that audience, friends and stuff, where there are side conversations, and that can really hurt somebody's feeling that can make them second guess things. And my gosh, they're going through loss as it is. Don't add that extra burden. And I don't think people even understand that that's happening. Right. Too often those conversations are based on, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And, and that's okay that they didn't do it. You did. You chose that way. And again, you're right. That needs to be honored and respected. Yeah. So how does a dementia diagnosis versus another type of diagnosis differ in terms of terminal illness? And how does that change the conversation in your eyes? In my eyes, it changes the conversation because it seems that it is a longer timeline. And in the timeline in the early days, I kind of am coherent and lucid, and then I'm not. And then is it just because I'm aging? Or is it because it's the beginning of? And it takes a lot of time where a terminal diagnosis, you know that it Usually with a terminal diagnosis comes a prognosis with a length of time. With dementia, that's not as clear. My mother passed in her 90s. My father, who was perfectly healthy other than he was also in his 90s when he died. But my genetic background suggests that I'll live into my 90s. And so my, you know, again, warning my kids, look for signs of dementia. Don't just assume I'm the dotty old mother you know, think about it. You know, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years. So she started having symptoms in her mid fifties and she lived till 86. And, uh, you know, that's what kind of got me into this space to begin with. But there is, uh, you know, when people don't start having these conversations before these issues come up, 
Then it's the whole conversation of competency. When can they choose? How do they do those things? And and that's really, really important to each and every one of them that I've ever talked to all around the world. Right. You know, they think about this stuff and they want to have this conversation. And it's important for families not to feel so uncomfortable with this. This is a life or death situation. And very, very, very important. I think it's it's really, really interesting the fear that we have over illness and death. And yet we all know probably both are going to happen to us in our lifetimes. The odds are against yeah. us yeah. all. And, and I don't know in your family, in my family, I experience where age-wise, I am where I'm at. I'm, I'm close to 70. And yet, if you talk to my kids, most of them think I'm in my 50s. Um, they're catching up with me in age. So I can reflect back what it's like to be 40, but they cannot project forward what it's like to be 70, 80, or 90. And so there's this interesting time loop where they think there's more time, and we see time running out. Oh, that's very true. I'm, I'll be 62 next week. And you know, my body's not what it used to be. And neither is my mind. I mean, things are just different. My priorities have changed. And yet, I, I agree, everyone sees you as boom, 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 you're doing this, you're doing that. And I kind of want to slow down a little bit. You know, I, I my priorities have changed in terms of how I want to spend my time and, and do things. And have I achieved that yet? Not necessarily. Yeah, that's a really good, good point in, in talking about that. What are the most important points that you think people should take away from your presentation? It's never too early to have the conversations. Mm -hmm. It's always about the patient. And when you forget that, just remember, it's always about the patient and what the patient wants. And I would say, look to provide guidelines rather than very specifics. If my heart stops, do a DNR. It's important, but be prepared. That may not happen. And so giving the guideline for this is how I would make medical decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, one question that I didn't ask you and I should have was you've developed all these different methods and it, it sounds like developed them through your own life in terms of the importance of experiences that you've gone through. Why do you think that your methods work so well? for people? As I mentioned earlier, in the last 15 years of my career, I was a project manager. I was in software. And there is a whole industry and certifications and um, degrees around project management. What you saw in the triple constraint, the quality, time, and cost is really just a concept that is well known in project management. It was just re- purposed for the medical event. The same thing with defining quality of life. We always go through a section where we are gathering requirements. And so eliciting clues, what is important to the customer? Uh, we have what's called a statement of work. I would liken that to the goals of care that you develop with your care professionals. So this is time-tested and industry-proved, just transferred to medical events from the patient perspective. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you think about your life, you adapt a lot of things to different areas uh, because it, it just, it really is kind of common sense. 
But again, when you don't want to have that conversation, nothing's common sense. It's just, it's just like, nope, nope, we're in total denial and that's where we're going to stay. But again, if you, if you look at by having these discussions, it makes it so much easier on your loved ones when those decisions have to be made. Um, even doing like the prepaid burials and, and things like that. You can go through all that process. There's still stuff you're going to have to do at the last minute and it's going to feel overwhelming. But man, you've gotten a lot of stuff out of the way. And don't you want it easier on your loved ones to take the burden off, you know, life and death decisions for them? Right. You right. know, to be able to give them comfort. I mean, you don't want that haunting somebody because that's going to affect their quality of life. Right. And a lot of times the haunting will be experienced as PTSD, which is something that we haven't talked about. But as I've done speaking in the last 10 years and sharing some of the stories, I've heard other stories. And I've watched older men sit in the audience with tears running down their face because they made a life and death decision on life support for their mother 20 years ago. And it has haunted them. And the nurse in the family who understood what was going on and the family didn't, and then when there was the death actually occurred, she was ready, they weren't. And she regretted some of the things. And so it's, it's just, uh, there are times where the grief just goes on and on, and it's more than grief. Yeah. Yeah, I think I felt that with my dad. And even though we were really close, we were in sync. I like kept looping his death. I just kept reliving it over and over. And even though it was a really beautiful moment, I mean, literally I had my hand on his chest and I told him it was okay to go. And I felt the electricity of him leaving his body go up my arm. I mean, it was just a incredible moment, but I, I, I got stuck in that. And the the loss just, it was difficult for almost a year. And I was really surprised at that because I was very comfortable with the whole decision making, but it was because we were so close, that loss, that grief, it just kept bubbling up. And so one of the things that I've learned to help cope with that is, and this is one of the things I do when I do training, is I tell people, you know, you can't have great loss without first having great love. And so many people never, ever have that. And so when I think of that, it lifts me up and go, how lucky am I to have this much pain? Yes. Because I love so deeply. Yes. And to me, that that helps kind of change all of that. But again, you have to be open to feeling those feelings. Can't stuff them down. Because even like you were saying, that person who had to deal with their mom, you know, 20 years ago, we might not think about it daily, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. And it can be pulled to the surface, but it needs to be pulled to the surface because you can't, in my opinion, you, otherwise you can't move through it. Right. With that. I do want to ta- have you talk about the books that you've written in the gray zone and the fog zone. Can you tell us about those? Sure. The first book I wrote was the gray zone when life support no longer supports life. And it is a very short book about the 10-day experience I had in the ICU. In retrospect, what I've learned is that I was not prepared for shared decision-making with the medical team. Modern medicine has made so many advances in the last 50, 60 years. The phrase that I use, just because modern medicine can, doesn't mean modern medicine should. 
And so it was written trying to help someone who is in the exact position that I was trying to figure the right way forward. Certainly Googling what's going on from the ICU bed is not a good way to do it. And again, having that healthcare directive, understanding what's important, I knew less from the healthcare directive and more from the conversations, what was important to Bill. The fog zone, navigating the space after your diagnosis, was looking at Bill's death in the ICU, my mother's death from Alzheimer's, my dad's death from just normal aging at 93, dying in his sleep, and saying, we're still not having conversations. How can we have conversations? How can we catch up to where the medical professionals are? So it's trying to Again, be that catalyst for a conversation early in a diagnosis, early, even at 18, and certainly be a resource to understand what's going on. Wonderful. Well, if they cover anything like your presentation, I mean, what worthy books to go out and purchase? This has really been a a fabulous, fabulous conversation, Deborah. I, I can't thank you enough. You know, I hope people like, click, and share this just even our conversation together. I've learned new things from you as well. I think we are always learning if our minds are open. And if we can take the scary out of this and just switch it over to this is smart living. You know, this is going to make life easier for everybody in the long run, getting those difficult conversations and processing. I think so many people have a difficult time processing the the what ifs on paper, and yet they do it in their mind all the time. And it's just so much easier to like dump it out and let it be known. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, I think it just lessens the burden for yourself and for, for everyone else. I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. Wonderful. For people to get a hold of you, they can email you at D and then your last name is L A X S O N at healthcareagentliteracy.com. We will also have your address listed too if they would like to to write to you. So again, a thank you for being so diligent in taking this topic so seriously and putting it in words that are easy to digest and to give us some different stories to look at. I think the way that you did that is is brilliant. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, and for our listeners, you like, you click, and you share. This is a conversation that needs to be had. So pass it on. Don't be shy. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.